0: The following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi.
1: City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.
0: Today's sermon text is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons... When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken.
1: How are we doing, folks? I want to ask you a question uh, before we journey any further in this text, and that question is this When was the last time you were angry for the right reasons? When was the last time that you were angry for the right reasons? You know, angry is anger. Rather, is rarely rightly reflected. Rarely rightly reflected. Anger is often ignited and stirred and 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 inflamed in some of the most trivial circumstances. Some of the some of the most unnecessary f- situations in life. Anybody ever had a situation that made you so mad with a friend or a, or a family member or even a spouse only to literally forget what you were angry about when someone asked you to recall it, right? And it made you so mad, but it literally wasn't even important for your long-term memory. That's how useless it was to you. Anybody, anybody any parents in the house? Hello, right? Got, a, got two lovely boys of my own. Have have you ever been so angry with your child for nothing more than just having too much energy? I mean, he hasn't even done anything. He's like, "Sit down." He's like, "What, what do I do? What's, what, what's going on?" You know, You're just moving too much. You know, sit down somewhere. You know, we we get angry for some of the some of the most ridiculous things. We we rarely are. Angry for the right reasons. Sometimes anger is a reflection of our own selfishness. Sometimes anger is a reflection of our own fatigue. Sometimes it's a reflection of our own ignorance and our own pride. But rarely is it completely the fault of one whom we hold our anger towards solely. Rarely does it stay also within the confines of righteous anger and holy anger. It always bleeds out into something petty. Does that make sense? It may even start righteous, and then, it, and then it morphs into bitterness, selfishness, arrogance, pride, pettiness. Yet that doesn't mean that righteous anger is not possible. Anger can be righteous, for example, in Ephesians, or, or, to, or to, to, to answer that, question or to support that statement, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry and do not sin. So anger and sin does not necessarily have to be directly connected. Jesus reflected this type of anger for uh, a few times in his, in his earthly ministry. For example, in Mark 3, a man with a paralyzed and unusable hand that, they, that the scriptures would call withered was present in the synagogues on Sabbath. And the religious elite were watching Jesus closely, not because they saw the need that this man had to be healed, but they were watching Jesus closely because they were ready to leap on his healing, if in fact he did produce it, and say, look at him healing people and doing good things on the Sabbath. How dare he do good things? And the Bible records Jesus responding in this way in chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 of Mark. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grief at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand, was, his hand was restored. He looked at the religious elite with anger, but it was an anger that was mixed in with grief. Grieved at their hardness. Jesus' anger was, was, was stirred by the fact that this religious group couldn't move past their own piety to show pity you tracking with that? Their morals left no room for mercy. If our piety or our morals don't move us to heal the wounds of the broken, if it doesn't move us to respond to the suffering, to connect the downtrodden to the Savior, we make room for Jesus' sinless, righteous, and holy anger. Anger filled with everything that our nice and pleasant and smiley, self-righteous pride-filled arrogance can sometimes lack. Anger filled with grief, anger filled with compassion, anger filled with pity, anger filled with love, even. A righteous anger can rarely be satisfied without tears of love. Righteous anger is 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 settled in love it is it is built and established and rooted in grief and pity and mercy Jesus loved those who were afflicting harm or who were preventing healing but he he he, he loved not only those that were inflicting it but he loved those who were inflicted with it and this is what stirred his anger the fact that he loved both of them. He loved the fact, he loved the people that, that was withheld healing, but he also loved the people that was withholding it. Because of their hardness of heart, it, it caused them to be angry. Does that make sense? When was the last time you were angry for the right reasons? So I want to talk to you a little bit about Jesus in another display of anger. This this temple cleansing, spring cleaning, as we call it, because it's actually a temple cleansing and it's happening in the spring, believe it or not. Let's talk a little bit about the setting for this cleansing. And then let's talk about the actual acts of cleansing. And there's a reason why we put a plural on the acts. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Let's talk about the setting. How dirty was this place, really? How dirty was this place? Well, start with the fact that this is not the first cleansing that we hear about in the Gospels. The synoptic Gospels actually have another cleansing, and and we call the synoptic Gospels the synoptics because they are like one another. They are the same or they are similar. In other words, they have the same stories or similar stories, and they have the same timeline or similar timelines. And so the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John stands apart on his own. Because he tells a different story, or he has different stories that he uses. He brings to light different things that Jesus says. His timeline doesn't take the same journey or linear journey that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. And so there's distinctions that separate John's gospel from the other's gospel. And so in all the other gospels, there's a temple cleansing, and that temple cleansing actually happens at the end of Jesus' ministry the last Passover that Jesus experiences. But this particular gospel, the gospel of John, this temple cleansing happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so some people say, wait a second, is John getting his timeline off? Is he, is he mixing in something that happened at the end with something that actually, or some, is he mixing in something that happened at the end with something that he thought happened at the beginning? Here's a few reasons for thinking that that's not the case, and thinking that there were actually two different instances of cleansing. One is the timing. John puts it on the front end, the first Passover of Jesus' ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke puts it on the back end, the last Passover of Jesus' ministry. But also the tolerance. The first reference to the temple cleansing is met with very little resistance from the religious elite. They, they, in John's cleansing, they mention him, acts they mention rather a sign. Hey, how do you have authority to do this? Show us a sign to show us that you have the authority to do what you're doing. And that's it. But by the time we look at the second cleansing at the back end of Jesus' ministry, not, they're not just looking for a sign. They are ready to take him out. As a matter of fact, the, the, the scriptures talk about them basically now, after this temple cleansing, plotting his demise and his destruction. And so there's, there's argument there that, that Jesus is met with more fury on the back end, on the second cleansing, than he's met with on the front end, on the first cleansing, because this is year one Jesus versus year three Jesus. By the time you get to year three Jesus, they're just like sick and tired of this man. He's, he's he stirred the pot so much for them. He's disrupted so many things for them that at this point they're like, okay, listen, enough is enough. Let's get this guy out of here. So the tolerance speaks to the idea that it may be two instances. But then the talk also speaks to the idea that there may be two instances Jesus is recorded as saying two different things in each instance, or different things in each each instance. John records Jesus saying after his cleansing, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He also references his death when they say, hey, show us a sign. Destroy this temple, and and in three days I will raise it up. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But the second time, Jesus still references his disgust with trade, but he focuses also not simply on the trade happening in God's house, and what's not, and, what, and rather what's not going on, or rather what is going on, but also he focuses on what is not going on. So he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so he speaks about the trade and the unholy practice of the trade, but then he talks about what is not going on, which is it should be a house of prayer. This is not mentioned in John. And so the possibility is, is that Jesus caused disruption in the first Passover And then by the time you get to the third Passover, they're still doing it. and It causes us another disruption of which they say enough is enough of that guy. Let's get him out of here. You tracking with that? Let's talk about the Passover for a second. So all of this was taking place during the Passover week, which every Jewish person knows is a really, really, really big deal. As a matter of fact, it is the biggest deal of all of the festivals that they have. According to Zondervan's Illustrated Bible Backgrounds commentary, it says this, quote, The Passover was the most important Jewish feast commemorating God's dramatic deliverance of the Jews from Egypt on the night of Exodus, when the death angel passed over the firstborn in homes whose doorposts had been marked with blood. And you can read about it in Exodus 12. Continuing the quote, it was celebrated on the 14th day of the lunar month, Nisan, according to our calendar, that's at the end of March or the beginning of April, hence spring cleaning. It was one of the three annual pilgrim feasts that all Jewish men were to celebrate in Jerusalem. large number of worshipers from the outlying provinces of Palestine and the diaspora filled the capital city during that time, end quote. So this was a signature moment of worship for everyone who named the God of Israel as their God. This was even a moment of cleansing all the way down to people's houses where they would clear out any leavened food that might have been remaining in their homes. A practice that continues today for some of the more highly observant Jews. Worship was, the utmost, was of the utmost importance of, in Jerusalem during this time. Of the utmost importance, worship was essential during this time. So what's the problem? And that moves us to the players. There's two players that we want to talk about in particular. Really, there's three of you, including the religious elite. But the two players we want to discuss right now are the offering merchants and the money changers. The offering merchants and the money changers. So the scripture says that in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now both of these groups of people provided what would seem on the surface to be useful services to all the people that were flooding into Jerusalem during this time for this particular occasion. Those selling oxen, those selling sheep, those selling pigeons were providing a service to those traveling from long distances who had come to worship through offering but couldn't bring their animals with them. And so they needed to so they so they needed the animals in order to offer up their offering in obedience to the law, but they couldn't bring them that long of a way. It was difficult at least. And so what they would do is that they would bring money and once they got to Jerusalem the offering merchants would provide the animals for them to make the sacrifices, and they would purchase the animals at the site of Jerusalem. Those exchanging money were also providing a service. Those exchanging money were, were providing a service to those that were traveling from all these different outlying provinces without the proper currency because of the foreign lands from which they came. So the, so the temple tax that every Jewish man was, was, was instructed to pay was about a half shekel, okay, and that temple tax was, was, was actually the coins that were used by the temple in that day was the Tyrrhenian coin, all right? And so most folks coming in didn't have Tyrrhenian coins. And so what they would do is when they got there, whatever, whatever coinage they used, they would pay a fee to have that coinage exchanged. And that coinage would be exchanged for the Tyrrhenian coin, and they would use the Tyrrhenian coin to actually pay the temple tax that every Jewish male was required to pay. So, you got two different groups of people providing what seems like two reasonable acts of service. What's wrong with the picture? First thing is that they're exploiting the service for profit, or they're exploiting the people that are using the service for profit. So they're exploiting for profit those seeking God. The money changers and those selling animals were both known to jack the price up, of the service, above what was considered reasonable, and even would push their exploitation to new heights during the special seasons of worship, such as Passover. Let me ask a question. How many people go to movies? Anybody in here? Movie movie watchers? How aggravating is it to go to a movie and pay eight bucks for a box of popcorn? How aggravating is that, right? Because you know that popcorn is like 80 cents. I mean with the butter you can throw in a few quarters, right? Butter's expensive. But but, but certainly that popcorn is no no higher than $1.50. And yet, and yet you're paying eight bucks for that popcorn. It infuriates you to actually know that you are paying way above and beyond what you have to pay. But you know, Elijah's, you know, telling you how much he needs, pop-that's me, right? So, some of you guys, you know, you got your own reasons for buying it, Elijah's telling me he has to have it, okay? And so, and so that's why we end up buying it most of the time. Sometimes I try to sucker him into McDonald's and we eat before so that we don't have to pay for it. Most of the time it doesn't work, all right? But what about scalping? Anybody, anybody ever had to buy a ticket to a game from a scalper? Remember when Mississippi State was good? I know, I know, no jokes, okay? Remember when Mississippi State was good? A couple of years ago, number one in the country. I wanted to go see a game. First, the tickets were like 60 bucks, something like that, 70 bucks maybe at the most. Mississippi State hit number one in the country, right? And it was that week that I was like, man, I got to go see these guys play. Look up online, 250 bucks. What? From 70 to 250? To see Mississippi State? I'm not going, I'm not going to see Dallas, right? I'm going to see Mississippi State. Dak ain't playing for Dallas yet. And so, and so I was aggravated. I was agitated by the fact that people would, sca- would jack the price up, not, not just simply to make a reasonable amount of profit, but to jack it up in such a way to make an insane amount of profit. Okay, now think about what if folks were scalping worship. What kind of anger would you feel for that? taking advantage of folks who considered it a necessity to worship, considered it their reasonable service to God, to worship, taking folks who, who, that didn't have much in the way of finances, that didn't have much in the way of resources, and exploiting their need to worship to ensure they remained poor while the system of worship grew increasingly wealthy and luxurious. Exploiting worship... While, while standing in front of this immaculate building that's been constructed in the name of God. Exploiting worship while the religious elite continue to get wealthy and rich. And while the poor continue to get poorer and poorer. Whether it is charlatans in our pulpit fleecing the sheep of all of their hard-earned dollars, cash, resources, or the more subtle form but no less insidious overpricing of Christian resources, not to simply accommodate the creators well, but to make them filthy rich. This is what should stir righteous anger when worship is scalped. Are you tracking with that? You don't have to go to a football game. You don't have to buy popcorn. But when we see systems in place that seek to exploit people at their point of need and at their point of necessity, we have possible grounds for righteous anger. I mean, if the ticket's too expensive to go see the Bulldogs, I just don't go, right? Popcorn's too expensive at the movies, we just say, hey, Elijah, wait, man. We'll get some microwave when we get home, right? Cousin Willie's is just as good as the popcorn in there. But when it is necessary and we use and we pray on the need and the necessity and exploit, that should start righteous, holy, loving, grieving, pitying anger. Anger filled with tears, anger filled with joy. Anger filled with compassion. Anger filled with love. Again, when was the last time you were angry for the right reasons? Not only were they exploiting the prophet, but they were also exploiting the worship of those seeking God. They were blocking the worship. We talked about the dynamics and the setup of the temple before, but for those of you who may not remember or may not have heard that message when we talked about it a few weeks ago, here's how it was constructed. The temple was compartmentalized in four major ways, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the Israelites, and the court of the priests. And each name established uh, the, the end of the line for the people whom it was named after. So the court of the Gentiles meant that this was as far as the Gentiles could go. The court of the women meant this was far, this was as far as the women could go if they were Jewish women. If they were Gentile women, they had to stay back in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Israelites meant that this was as far as the Israel men or the Jewish men could go if they were not priests. And the court of the priests symbolizes this is as far as the priests go, obviously, into the holies of holies and et cetera, et cetera, which is exclusive, and you could die going in. So, so this is the idea of this, 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 this hierarchy, so to speak, all right? So what kindled the righteous anger of Jesus was the practice that became common for the money changers and the offering sellers to set up shop right in the outer courts in the middle of the court of the Gentiles instead of completely outside of the temple. Does that make sense? Blocking worship. This created chaos of the the highest order. Imagine all of these animals and this yelling and this shouting like a marketplace in an area that should have been solemn and sacred and reserved for worship. Worship was being withheld for the convenience of commerce. It was a practice that made a clear statement to the Gentiles that were gathered there. Your worship is not important. That's what was being said. Your worship is not important. But not only was it not important, but it was fit and suited for the temple officials' exploitation on top of that. So not only are we going to block you, but we're going to exploit you and block you. So these two things, blocking of worship, exploitation for profit, led to Jesus' cleansing, which itself was not permanent, permanent act, at least the first one, but a temporary act, which leads us to the second point. And the final point, the acts. Let's say there's a temporary cleansing and a permanent cleansing. Not because it's, we're talking about the two Passover cleansings. But we're talking about two cleansings that Jesus is speaking of right here in this text. Both are effective, but one is a temporary measure and the other ones are permanent. So let's talk about the temporary measure. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So this temporary cleansing was an act of love, love for God. Don't desecrate my father's house by allowing it to be a place where worship can't happen, but exploitation can Jesus' love for the Father is true. John 14, verses 30 through 31, I will no longer talk much with you, but for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus' love for the Father is pure and is holy and is true. He loves his Father, and so when he sees his Father's house being exploited and he sees the purposes of his Father's house being desecrated, he rises up with a loving, pitying, grieving anger. Jesus' love for his people was also on display as well. He expresses it even clearer in his words during the second cleansing, the words that we read just earlier, Matthew 21, when he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it or you make it a den of robbers, a house of prayer. He loves his people so much that he desires that they all have a place to worship. And here, the temple officials and the religious elite were ensuring that that was not the case by at least blocking and disrupting the, the worship of the Gentiles, and obviously probably disrupting a bunch more. But this, this, that, that verse, that, that quote that Jesus makes, is actually a quote from Isaiah 56, 56, 6 and 7 where it says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, every people group. I shall make them joyful in my house. How shall I make them joyful in my house? By giving them a place and a space to worship me. And not only only are you robbing them of worship, but you're robbing them of joy. And that makes me angry. The point of Jesus' words to the religious elite that allowed the crowding of the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles, for the sake of commerce, was that worship was for all People, worship from all people was valuable to him and thus none of their worship should be disrupted. Rich worship, poor worship, black worship, white worship, native worship, foreigners worship should have been able to find hope refuge and the privilege to worship God when they arrived at this temple. If I can ask you a personal question, how is it that we disrupt it? Do we disrupt others? Are we keeping any away? Sometimes could it be conscious or unconsciously or sometimes could it be intentional, maybe even unintentionally, unintentionally. Can the homeless worship freely, or is it only a place for the privilege? Can the outsider worship with the insider? Jesus' act was not only an act of love, or his cleansing was not only an act of love, but his cleansing was also an act of authority. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, so who do you think you are? Who died and made you the cleanser of this temple? How do you carry such authority that you can waltz in here with whips and cords and, 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 and push our animals out of here and, and drive the folks that are, that are, that are given a good, honest good honest service here by, by making sure that people have the, che- the right change when they get ready to pay their temple tax? Who are you to do such things? This was no small act Jesus was undergoing and performing. The temple was a sight to behold, so anyone who thought that they could come in and discipline the elite and the officials better had come with great authority. The larger-than-life composition and the grandiose nature of the temple exceeded the piety and the goodness of one mere man coming in with ropes. You better have had authority walking in there doing what Jesus was doing. For Pete's sake, some of the walls were plated with gold in this place. So when Jesus rushed through those market alleys, turning tables over and disrupting resting animals, it was him declaring that I am someone with authority. As a matter of fact, this isn't just a house of someone that I love, a friend of mine whom I hold dear, but this is my father's house. And so I come and his authority restoring what has been undone and, and, and making what has been disrupted right again. Jesus' act, his cleansing was also an act of restoration. It was a, intended to bring worship back to his proper place. And so he's saying, listen, worship has been thrown out of the window. You've taken what was supposed to be a place of worship, and you've desecrated it by making it a place for your own personal gain, blocking the very people that are supposed to be here to worship. I've come to undo that. I've come to restore worship. And so he does that. But, but if we are to think, about the the, 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 to think about the theory that this is the first of the second, then that means Jesus walk, walked in there, disrupted this thing, turned tables over, And literally two years later, they're right back at it, man, doing the same thing. So so what do we think about that? Well, again, this is the temporary cleansing. Let's talk about the permanent one. So the permanent cleansing. The Jews said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Who do you think you are? And Jesus gives them a sign. And that sign communicates at least three things to me. That sign communicates for one a movement from death to life. That, that, that what, what, what this temple is producing at this point cannot produce eternal life. That this temple cannot produce life everlasting. But I will. He says in verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, the Jew said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus said, listen, this temple, you destroy it. Three days, is coming back up. This is the temple that will actually bring life. This is the temple that will actually restore worship once and for all. You tracking with that? This temple. Not the temple that I'm cleansing right now. This temple. So Jesus' picture of cleansing, think about it as a foreshadow of the great temple to come, which was him embodied. He was the temple. Amen? He was the temple that all people and all nations could come and worship in freely and find the joy that God had always intended for those who would come and worship in his name. Jesus was that temple. But not, not only was it, a, not only was a, a, it was a shift from death to life, but it was, an also, it was also an upheaval, the old temple for the new temple. The old temple for the ultimate and final temple. His words were more so a metaphor, right? Because we, we just read that in verse 21 and 22, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. But even though his words were metaphoric and even though they took it wrong, the amazing thing about these words is that they were still appropriate. Because guess what happens? The, they take the words and they say, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me, let me get this right. So you're telling me that you're going to destroy our temple, this temple, this vast temple, this massive temple, this temple plated with gold and all of the finest and most precious materials that, that, our, that our people could possibly find. It costs fortunes upon fortunes upon fortunes to build. It is immaculate. It is securely structured. And you're telling me that this temple, that it took us over 40 years to build, that you're going to tear it down you're going to build it in three days. Ha! What a ridiculous idea. That day as Jesus spoke, probably somewhere in A.D. 30, those folks probably thought, there's no way somebody's coming along and taking down this temple. And 40 years later, it was in ruins. 40 years later, it was rubble. In A.D. 70, when Rome came through under the orders of the of the elite establishment, and destroy the temple. You know why? You know why? Because that temple couldn't save anybody. And so even as they were basking in their arrogance, exploiting and robbing, blocking from worship, and then declaring, no, 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 there's no way this temple will be destroyed, and no way that this temple will be that you can build it back up, Jesus was stating in that moment that, listen, I am the real temple. Does that make sense? Not the building, not the construction, not the materials. It's not the place that you go to. It's the person that you come to. Jesus is our place of worship. Jesus is our final resting place, our final place of worship. Here's what's stunning about the words. When asked by the religious elite to give us a sign that gives you the authority to do what you're doing, he practically practically tells them that I'm going to give you a sign through my death and resurrection that will not only simply demonstrate that I have the authority to perform this cleansing, but I'm going to give you a sign that will show every person on earth seeking my face that they no longer even need this place that I'm cleansing right now. that this sign will prove this place irrelevant. But not only was it a sign of upheaval, it was also a sign of exchange. While it may seem like the, the, the owners of the systems always win, right? Because you see, you see the first Passover, Jesus comes through and cleanses it. You see the third Passover, he's back coming through and cleansing it. He said, that's just like, <laughs> you know, that's just like corruption, ain't it, right? No matter, no matter how many times the system gets torn down, it gets re more corruption, more exploitation, more disrupted of those that are, that are suffering, more disruption of those that have little, more taking from the, from the little guy and giving to the, the wealthy. But we need not be dismayed. Exploitation of the weakest may seem to have no end in sight. Exploitation of the little worshipers that God has gathered may seem to have no end. But we need not be hopeless because the sign, the sign that Jesus produces for us 2,000 years ago, the sign of the ultimate temple tells us that the exploitation will one day end for those that trust him with their lives. Christ Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection— serves as a sign to us that the exploitation and blocking will one day end. All who choose to trust him with their lives by turning from their life of sin and living according to their own will to turning to him believing that he is mighty to save shall see an end to all that is wrong in this world. All that angers us righteously, all that inf- Infuriates us justly all that we look at and and we weep at and we cry over and say when will something be done about this christ's sign tells us that it'll be done we might not know when it'll be done but it'll be done amen Who will stand for the weakest? Who will stand when those who have yet to breathe one breath in the world are told that they don't matter? Who will stand when those who don't have enough money are told that they aren't important? Who will stand when those who don't come from the right place or those who don't have the right complexion or those who don't have enough smarts are exploited and taken advantage of? Who will rectify all of the wrong done to the flock of God? in the name of worship, the answer is Jesus, Jesus. The tears will be returned with laughter. The sorrow will be returned with joy. Jesus will make it right. Just hold on, just hold on. When was the last time you were angry for the right reasons? Christ's death, burial, and resurrection proves to us and shows us that whenever that was, right, his permanent cleansing, his death on the cross for our sins shows us that whenever that was, that even that anger will one day be satisfied once and for all. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and thank you. We give you all praise. We give you all glory. We give you all honor. Father, we await the day that we shall see the full culmination of your temple, Jesus Christ, in all of your splendor and glory, the tears of anger wiped from our eyes, the sorrows and the regrets, no more. Father, by your spirit, keep us until that day. Father, by your Spirit, send us out to share the good news of great glad tidings of great joy with those around us, Lord, with those who are perishing because they do not know you. Send us out, Lord God. Send us out that they may join us that day in unobstructed, unbridled, joyful, glad singing and worship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we give you all the praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.